So to all those in Santa Fe who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in our second in a new series in the book of Romans, Loved and Called. And as we continue with Paul's big idea, his main idea, this is his thesis statement, verse 16 and 17, let's be reminded that ideas have consequences. So I quote, Victor Frankl was a Jew imprisoned in the Nazi concentration camps of Auschwitz and Dachau during the Second World War. And as a Jewish professor of both neurology and psychiatry, he became world-renowned for his book, some of you have read it, Man's Search for Meaning, which sold over 8 million copies. In the book, he unfolds the essence of his philosophy, came to be called logotherapy, namely, that the most fundamental human motive is to find meaning. He observed in the horrors of the concentration camps that man can endure almost any how of life if he has a why. But the quote that stirred me recently was this. He says, I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz and Treblinka and Dachau These were ultimately prepared, not in some government ministry or other in Berlin, but instead at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. In other words, ideas have consequences. Consequences that either bless or destroy. And people's behavior, the outworking of their ideas, good or bad, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from their prevailing worldviews of reality that take root in both mind and heart and bear the fruit of either good or evil. Ideas have consequences, and this is Paul's big idea. And there's another idea. There's a host of examples we could have taken, but one that's prevalent in our day and age is this. The universe is cold, doesn't care, empty, We're basically reduced to sentient animals. You are a smart steak, as it were. A smart steak. Is anyone getting hungry? Some of you are grade A. I see a few filet mignons. A few of us are grizzle. That's okay. That's what you are, a smart steak. And if that's true, then righteousness is revealed from and by those who ultimately have power. Justice and righteousness is based on the pragmatism of what works for the few who were able to control such a thing at that point in time. And when we read the news and observe the power dynamics of the world, if we're humble enough to have eyes to see, it it often appears that that's the case. Justice is what works for the elite for now. Unfortunately, righteousness doesn't grow on trees. Some animals seem to be nice to each other and others eat one another. We should compare the ideas that surround us to the gospel. A Greek word that just means good news, good news. The word is euangelion. And here's the good news. Here's Paul's good news for the church in Rome and the church in Santa Fe. That God's 
justice, his righteousness, his holiness, his promise making and keeping. So his covenant justice and his love through Christ are for all who will trust in him. For all who will set aside their own works, their own righteousness, their own sinful ways, and will turn from empty cups and lesser things to God himself. Now that's an idea. (laughs) Apparently an idea that has changed all of history. And I wonder if we have a few people here this morning, maybe you're here and you're really wrestling with your faith. You're really struggling to believe in God. You're struggling to believe that God is real. Or maybe if he's real, is he there? Or if he's there, maybe you could give me a little help, please, sir. I think this is a great day for you to to be here because we're going to get to the core of, of what's so good and so powerful about this good news. Paul tells us this gospel, verse 16, he's not ashamed of it. We saw that last week. This gospel is a manifestation of the power of God so that he might get maximum glory and we might be filled and flourish and have maximum joy and be maximally a blessing to the people around us in this city. Last week, we talked about the Book of Romans as a massage chair, right? It hurts so good. Kind of works on those knots, feels great, and it gets to a knot, it kind of hurts, but you know that this gospel is gonna work out the salvation of God in you through fear and trembling. This week, another metaphor. Romans, in particular, Paul's thesis here is like a a rocket launcher. Everything Paul's about to say in the next 16 chapters hinges on the meaning of verse 16 and 17. It's his central thesis statement. And Paul's a pretty organized writer. Some of his books take a little bit more of a stream of consciousness tone, a bit more personal, like the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy. Ephesians is pretty organized. Chapters 1 through 3, God's sovereign grace and our need, verses, excuse me, chapters 4 through 6, How shall we now live in light of that? But Romans is extremely organized. As we said, it's a symphony in four movements where Paul carries through the implications of this idea for Jew and Gentile, real people in a real church, in a real time and place throughout. Because as we said last week, it's, it's pretty hard to walk with Jesus sometimes. And so this is the power of God that we need. In the fifth century, there was a, well-known preacher and theologian, St. John of Chrysostom. He had the book of Romans read out loud to him every week. Every week. He'd have one of his pastoral interns or scribes or friends come over and read the entire book to him out loud. Because this gospel that we'll be studying probably for the next six years, not really, I don't know. We'll see what the Spirit leads. Calm down. This gospel is the power of God. And I wonder if you feel like I do, that, man, you need God's power in your life. Maybe you don't sense God very often, or maybe you have stuff in your life that you're struggling with. You're doing okay on nine things, but there's one where, hey, that's mine, God, you can't come into this room, don't touch it. Perhaps you're well aware of your own powerlessness in some situation. Something you'd like to change, someone or some people you'd like to help, a relationship you'd like to mend. And maybe when you struggle through life, you're, you're striving to grow in the grace of God, but you're not perfect because you're not the Christ. And so when you fail, it, it happens again, doesn't it? Guilt, 
shame, whispers in our tiny little brains of condemnation. Man, if people really knew you, they wouldn't love you. And ultimately, you're not enough. Nothing is enough. You're not just. You're not good deep down. So where do we go for help when so often we feel powerless? Paul wants to answer that question, but there's more. We also live in a day where we are more inundated with advertisements and marketing and messages and stories about who you really are and what really matters and why you're really here on this earth than ever. I don't have any hard statistics to give you, but you know, something like by the time the average 10-year-old reaches their 11th birthday, they've seen over a million advertisements. Now, I just, that's not true. I just made that up. But I mean, you believe me because that seems right, doesn't it? I mean, that seems like that's actually pretty accurate. All of these things, not just trying to sell us a product, the product is an instrument. The product is a means to get us to believe that something about us isn't quite enough. Something about us is still a little bit broken, a little bit wrong, not quite fixed, not quite there yet. You better work. You better work hard to procure that righteousness. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So between those two poles, the powerlessness so often of our own hearts and the siren songs of the world, we get Paul's thesis that this gospel is the power of God. And this morning, I just want to unpack some of this. Why? And why in the world does it matter to Santa Feans in 2019? Main point is simple, that this gospel is the power of God to save us. This gospel is the power of God to save us. And here I want to remind us that Romans was not written in the vacuum of academic ivory towers. It was written by a real person, Paul, who loved this church he'd never visited. He'd heard of the church planted and growing. He'd heard of their faith. He longed to visit them, to impart to them a gift, to strengthen them. He wants to strengthen us. And it wasn't impersonal to Paul, some sort of abstract idea like, oh, cool, we learned another new philosophy, a big idea that'll help us. No, this was personal to Paul. Paul's own journey is a story about the power of the gospel. And so here I just want to do a quick kind of recap of the coming of the kingdom. In Genesis 3.16, after Adam and Eve believed that first lie of self love and self-righteousness. Did God really say? And they don't trust God and they eat the fruit. Even as they're being cursed justly for their sin, God comes alongside of them, clothes them in atonement outfits and says to Eve, don't worry, the gospel is coming. Genesis 3:16. one day a son will come and through an act of self-sacrifice and mutual self-destruction, this Son, this offspring will crush forever the head of the serpent, even as the serpent sinks his venomous teeth into this son's heel. And then we have the story of Israel, the unfolding of the covenants and the promises of God over time. And what foolishness to choose this little family, Abraham, that becomes this little Semitic wandering tribe, putzing around the ancient Near East, carrying their cool tent 
as the world superpowers of Assyria and Babylon rage on and scoff at these people who claim that they know and have heard the voice of the one and true living God. 400 years of silence after the book of Malachi, and then God reveals his righteousness. His one and only son comes and enters into the world, lives a perfect life, shows us the way, dies for our sin, rises so that we might have eternal life now and forever, ascends into heaven so that we might not ever doubt our assurance as he goes before the Father in prayer and says to his disciples, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit so that the church and the kingdom of God might be built. Now, as this starts to happen, the the Jewish religious leaders are getting pretty angry. This is kind of stirring up some trouble, this new sect of Judaism called the way. You know, these weird guys who are putting their trust in a crucified carpenter? I mean, nothing could be more absurd for Jews or for Greeks. And yet Jesus, Yeshua, the Christ, Messiah, the message of the gospel begins to spread and grip the hearts of the people. So they better do something about this. They send out Saul of Tarsus. He's kind of like a special forces rabbi from back in the day. First of all, he knows the Bible better than you or any pastor you've ever sat under. He has the entire Old Testament memorized, and he's about to go clean up this mess of misinterpreting the Old Testament, saying all things are fulfilled in Jesus. He begins to kill and persecute those who trust in Yeshua. And yet as he's on his way to Damascus, after standing at the stoning of Stephen, he is knocked off his horse in a miracle conversion. He sees the light of God, and I love that question. Lord, who are you? And the voice speaks from heaven and says, it is I, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. God saves Paul, and in perfect providence. Remember I said the book of Romans has more Old Testament Jewish connections fulfilled in Christ than any of Paul's other letters because there was a large Jewish community in Rome, in the church. Paul is the perfect man in the providence of God. A Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He studied under Gamaliel. He's an Old Testament genius, and now he can see all of the connections made. And he can especially see this beautiful truth that it's not by our works or our merit or our self-righteousness that we are made whole, but the the revelation of of the righteousness of God to us in his son. That's the context of the book of Romans. So the gospel is the power to save us, and it's personal to Paul. And it's more than just praying the prayer so that you can someday get to heaven and have fire insurance. Paul isn't really corrupted by American individualism and consumerism in the same way that we are. Salvation isn't a future thing for Paul that you as an individual have to accomplish. For Paul, salvation isn't just heaven, it's now. It's that God is saving us now. It's that this power is available to us now that we might become more holy and grow in grace. That's why we read 1 Corinthians 15 for our common confession. That's probably the oldest, the oldest confession of faith in the scriptures. Paul says, look, I delivered to you what I first heard. It's simple. Christ died. Christ was raised. And we are being saved, Paul says. 
Being saved individually, corporately, now, of course, it's not yet, but it's bigger than just people. The beauty of salvation, and I don't want you to miss this because this is what Paul is, is going to be laying out for us in Romans. Again, it's not just about individuals having a salvation experience, but the whole world being made new. The recreation and renewal of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not just our hearts that suffer with brokenness, but there is so much injustice in the world. And God cares about the injustice of the world. Deuteronomy 15, the law says you need, you need to care about the widow and the fatherless and the poor and the needy and the born and the unborn and the young and the old and the weak and the broken. You don't get just to pick one issue. You have to pick all the issues in God's justice. Okay, that's true. And what does Paul say that maturity looks like in that sense then? To become mature in this salvation isn't to be one who's walked around having prayed a prayer, but it's to grow in self-sacrificial love for one another. So not just picking all the issues, but doing something that is costly to us about those things. That is why we gather and we bring our gifts and our tithes and our money and our talent and our treasure and our time and we set it at the altar of Jesus and we say, this is all we have, but Lord, use it to bring forth salvation, total recreation, renewal, and justice to the world. That's what it means that this gospel is the power of God to save us. Now, save us from what? I'm just going to tease this out. Save us from what? And Paul starts with our need. You notice in verse 18, I included that w weird verse. Somebody, I mean, even the way Christian read it, he was like, oh, wow. We ended on a good note. And then verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. All unrighteousness, those who suppress the truth. Paul starts with our deep need. Again, we live in a time period where really, you know, a lot of what we're told is it's, it's just all about you. You're the center of the universe, right? Your accomplishments, your comfort, how you feel in that moment, it's, it's all about you. Man's search for meaning is your search for your identity. Find that little core of your self-esteem and then get some self-help and, you know, do good. Just be super nice. It's easy for us to be nice nowadays because, you know, overall, we're living in a country where we don't have a lot of problems. Thank God. Just be nice. Find your own self deep down in who you are. Romans is a declaration to us that that is false. Not everybody gets a trophy. Romans is a declaration to us that the world doesn't revolve around us and what we feel but that the world and our lives and all things are about God. The name itself is used over 140 times at the book. God is at the center. Now look, only if you have a wrong understanding of God, do you think that means that nothing is about you? It's the exact opposite. God created you. He's raised you and sustained you. He's brought us here to believe this truth. He wants you to flourish and become in him through the Holy Spirit who you are made to be free in Christ. But that's because he's at the center, not us. 
And rather than us spend our lives searching for something to fulfill us. I mean, I have done that, haven't you? Again, the places we go to cope, the things that we think about and, you know, keep us from sleep at night, if I only had that, if this relationship was only that, if I only had this in my life, if I could only fix or control or do that. But the beauty of the gospel is that although it starts with our need and the, the, the false truth of our own searching, God comes right in and shows us that he's the one searching for us. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, look, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, but by grace you have been saved. You weren't just like really sick and God had to come up and go, oh, cool, you're sick. Here's a little medicine. No, you were dead. You had to be raised from the dead. You had to be resurrected. So if you're here and if you're believing, and even if your belief, like mine so often, is frail and weak and small and hoping for more, if you're here and you're believing, It's because the Holy Spirit of God has taken a heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh. God is the one who searches out our hearts and we find our identity in him. So friends, here's the point. At root, we don't have a behavior problem. It's not about behavior modification. At root, we don't have a problem of our circumstances. Now, I don't mean to belittle your circumstances. Some of you come from very difficult circumstances. And God cares about that. Some of you are in very difficult circumstances right now. And God cares about your suffering. But ultimately, that's not our problem. Oh, if only I didn't have these 10 bad things, I'd be fine. Nor is it a problem of information. If only I knew more. If only there was more evidence. If only a huge Jesus cloud would descend here in the window and go, "Ah." (laughs) then I would believe. Not true. God has made himself plainly known. It's not a problem of any of those things, but it's a problem of our heart. It's a problem of sin, which means selfishness, love of self, worship of self, putting ourselves on the throne. That's the problem. And that is what makes this gospel, the power of God, so incredible. Paul's great insight that we are not only saved from our sin, but we are saved to the full righteousness of of God. Now, we don't even believe this about ourselves. As Martin Luther said, I, I mean, I've said this a lot. I have to keep saying it. We are hopelessly meritorious. Oh, we are so hopeless in our sense of like, oh, does God love me today? I don't know. How was my week last week? We are saved to the righteousness of God. You see, Paul understood forgiveness and the cross. You're forgiven from your sins, but so often we feel like we are forgiven, and then we're like the prodigal son, walking back to the father thinking, okay, I'm forgiven, but God's really mad at me. He's kind of low grade, super angry at me. He's going to be passive aggressive, and you know, he'll accept me back into his house, but only as a servant. So I'm going to be like a good penitente and beat myself up, and I'll come back like a slave, and then it'll be okay. I'm forgiven, but I'm not righteous. I'm not justified. I'm not restored. I'm not made whole. And the question is a good one. How can we, who continue to struggle, truly stand just and justified before a holy and righteous God? Because the law, we know. We know the law, and the law kills. Now, 
God's law is a revelation of his character, which shows us his holiness. So the law isn't bad. The law is not the problem. You are. And we're not very good at keeping the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. Don't lust. It's been 14 minutes. Don't love money. Don't be selfish. That's why in our closest relationships, like marriage and children, that's why in our closest relationships, who we really are is brought to light. Oh, we are not very good at keeping the law. The law kills. And what happens when we're exposed, when God excavates the truth of our hearts that we're lawbreakers? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm prone to fear, anxiety, wondering if it will be okay. Will God still love me? Does he really love me? If he can really know what's there, if I might be fully known before him, can I still be fully loved? Because I guarantee if I had a TV screen atop my head that showed you guys what I was thinking all the time, well, I'd have a different job, wouldn't I? (laughs) So it's a good question that Paul asks. Because the law is good, because God is good. God is righteous and holy, and yet the law exposes us. There is no life for us in the law. And so then we come to righteousness. This rich, rich Old Testament word. It means at least two things in the Hebrew mind that apply to us. First of all, righteousness means God's character. God's character is one of perfect holiness. He makes and keeps promises to save his people. God's covenant character is that he always does his justice on earth. He is good and holy and just. That's who God is. But it's also a matter of righteousness of how God acts in the world and what he does. So righteousness might also be translated, again, as covenant justice or faithfulness. God is faithful to keep His promises. Here's the point. The righteousness of God means that God does it all. In chapter 4, Paul's going to bring us back to Father Abraham and remind us of that time when he put Abraham to sleep so that God himself could walk through the cut covenant to show Abraham and all the seed of Abraham that righteousness is only credited to them by faith because Abraham did no work. He was literally asleep. The righteousness of God in its richness gives us a lens into not only who he is, but how he acts in our lives. That God is the one who does all. And he does it all for his glory and to call his children to himself through Jesus, his son. In fact, the word righteousness is tied to the same root of the word that Paul's about to use a lot to justify or to be justified. Same three-letter consonant root in Hebrew. And why does that matter? Because here's the insight. The perfect holiness and righteousness of God is now by faith and not works for us, the people of God, so that we can stand before God in Christ with full assurance, fully justified. Meaning that when God looks at you, he doesn't even see your brokenness, your wounds, your failings, your sin. He sees the fullness of the holiness of the perfection of of his son. And so you're not just walking back to the father's house, beating yourself up, hoping that someday you might be a servant. Instead, Paul's gospel tells us that you are fully restored, that everything that you deserve is put on Christ, and everything that Christ earned is given to you. 
Not only are you now legally standing before God as justified, but you are adopted as a son or a daughter into his family. You are given his name. You are given his house. You are given his riches and his inheritance. The very holy righteousness of God is now who you are and who you will be forever because of Christ. Now that is a big idea, folks. And that changes the way that we live and walk and move and have our being in the world. Not only forgiven from, but saved to the full revelation of the righteousness of God for us. And all it takes is the gift of God to us, this faith. By faith, we are saved. The righteous will live by faith. I just want to say this is real good news. In the same way that all the products that we buy, and hey, dude, who doesn't do a little retail therapy from time to time? In the same way that those are instruments to remind us of our insufficiency, faith is the instrument that God uses to connect us with his full righteousness through Christ. The righteous will live, will flourish, will have full life by faith. And what I love about this is that in the Roman church where there's, you know, the, the Old Testament knowing Jew that has all the promises and the, you know, the, maybe the wealthier, more established, more privileged in the Roman Empire, Greek, all these people are brought together and all are brought low and yet all are exalted. Because it's not your status, your education, what you've accomplished, how much money is in your bank. It's by faith alone. This is real good news. Perhaps that's why Paul, in the book of Romans, several times as he's writing, literally breaks into doxology. He gets so excited that he interrupts his own writing and writes down praise. Because this is real good news. It's not fake news. There's so much religious fake news out there. There's so much religious fake news. There are bookstores with entire sections full of religious fake news. All you need is the secret. There's no secret. It's all public. He was crucified in public. He was raised in public. His word is preached in public. There's no self-help. There's no follow these 10 steps. Some of you have followed 10,000 steps and all you've done is dig yourself into a deeper pit. That's fake news. That's not good news. Oh, well, yeah, you're saved by grace, but then you better keep working and stay in the kingdom. Or here's another one. If you believe in Jesus, your life will be good, you'll make a lot of money, and you'll have prosperity all the time. And that's the truth. I'm telling you, you will never have problems if you trust in Jesus. Yeah, right. First of all, if the sheep will follow the shepherd wherever he went, Jesus himself had some big problems. You'll have problems too. This prosperity gospel is a lie. It's straight out of the pit of hell. It's fake news. So part of what Paul wants us to do, and here's the application, we need to repent, not only of our sin, but listen, we need to repent of our righteousness. We need to repent not only of our failings and our selfishness, but of that hopelessly meritorious belief that somehow we better work harder to get to God. Repent 
of your works righteousness, repent of your self-righteousness, repent of all righteousness, repent of the whispering lie that says, you know what? You can do better because it is all already done in Christ. For me personally, you know, I don't really, I don't do the door-to-door thing. I wish some of you are really good at, at very careful, loving, winsome evangelism. I always get kind of awkward. People are like, what do you do for a living? Oh, I don't know. You know, let's talk about something else. <laughs> wow, the weather, you know. But this is the only reason I have to share Jesus with the world. Not just saved from, but saved to. This is the life of freedom and joy and victory, even in our trials. This is the greatest idea ever told. This is why we literally organize time. Time itself is organized around the moment that God broke into history with the explosive news that the revelation of God, his very righteousness, is now available to all nations by faith in Christ alone. That's why this gospel, my friends, is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. While we were still sinners, it says Christ died for us. A man would scarcely die for another righteous man, but Christ, you, you set your love upon us when we were willingly suppressing the truth in our own unrighteousness, still believing that lie in the garden, still not really knowing if you're trustworthy or real, and we struggle with it today. So thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the power that you have revealed that can save us from faith, from your faithfulness, and for our faith, the very gift and instrument that we need to connect us to being fully justified and standing forever in your righteousness. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.